Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. And on this Monday, I am delighted to be joined by Kim McIntosh, writer, commentator, Labour councillor. It's great to have you back on. Thank you so much for inviting me back on. I'm excited to chat again today. We have a very busy show for you. That's partly because it was the National Conservative Conference today. So there were all sorts of rather odd Tories saying all sorts of rather odd things. So many of our stories will be drawn from that conference. We are, of course, also talking about the Turkish elections. We'll be speaking to an expert on Turkey a little bit later in the show. Straight to our first story. Home Secretary Suella Bradman has given a speech to an audience of right-wing Tories. The topic? Immigration, of course. Appearing at the new National Conservatism Conference, Braverman was responding to figures last week showing that net legal migration is now at record levels. Here's what she said. It's not xenophobic to say that mass and rapid migration is unsustainable in terms of housing supply, public services or community relations. Nor is it bigoted to say that we have too many asylum seekers in this country for whom we have insufficient accommodation. That absorbing more and more people means building more and more homes is another one of those unfashionable facts that the Open Borders Brigade would say means we're starting a culture war. It's not racist for anyone, ethnic minority or otherwise, to want to control our borders. No one is claiming that lots of migration might cause pressure on housing. The answer, though, is to say, let's build some more homes, which we need to do anyway, by the way. So sort of setting up this horrible zero-sum game where the Tories say, well, you can't have any more houses because our backbenchers um, are all in hock to NIMBYs. Um, so we're not going to build you any more housing. Also, we're against council homes, so we're not going to build those. Um, the landlords don't really want us to build more homes either, and a bunch of us are our landlords. So um, ignore all of those solutions, which are completely impossible. Instead, let's blame the migrants. Now, that's what's xenophobic, right? You find a real problem and you say none of the solutions which would really solve it for us are possible for some strange political or economic reason. Ah, um, you know who you should blame? The migrants. That's what's going on. No one, no, no one is denying that if you have an increase in population, that means you need more public services and more housing. Let's have more public services and more housing then. The Tories, of course, have been doing the opposite. So housing is a where it has been over the past decade, slightly higher now than it has been, but over the past decade, it's been as low as ever. And you know what's happened to public services. Now she can stand up and say, I am just telling bold truths. If you're struggling with housing, if you're struggling with public services, I know who to blame, the migrants. That's what she's saying. Braverman also took aim at foreign workers employed in food production, building and transit, saying this, while illegal migration is rightly our priority, given the acute challenges we face in the channel, we must not lose sight of the importance of controlling legal migration too. I voted and campaigned for Brexit. Indeed, I'm a proud Spartan because I wanted Britain to control migration so that we all have a say on what works for our country. High-skilled workers support economic growth and where the labour market has acute or structural shortages, as with the NHS, it is of course right that we should have an immigration system agile enough to plug these shortages, but we need to get overall immigration numbers down and we mustn't forget how to do things for ourselves. There is no good reason why we can't train up enough truck drivers, butchers, fruit pickers, builders and welders. It's not xenophobic to say that mass and rapid migration is unsustainable in terms of housing supply, public services and community relations. So some of those points I addressed before I read you that speech. The one about workers is very interesting. So sort of the, the technocratic critique of Suella Bradman, which I think is reasonable and interesting, is to say that what, is she, what she's saying is essentially um, fruit pickers, um, truck drivers, you guys 
you can't um, employ more migrants. What you've got to do is pay higher wages and train British people or people who are already here. Um, but at the same time, they're unwilling to do the same in social care where they control much more of the funding. So lots of the migration, which, you know, I don't think this is a problem. But if she thinks it's a problem, right, then much of it's being driven by the fact that the NHS and social care services aren't being funded enough to increase wages. The speech is being seen by some as posing a direct challenge to the policy agenda of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. This was today's Telegraph front page. And there's the headline, Braverman pushes PM to deliver on migrants. She is, of course, the Home Secretary. Um, Suella Braverman, though, is not the only person nudging Sunak over this issue. Ministers at DEFRA are due to make the opposite case to Sunak tomorrow, that we need more immigration. So The Guardian reports this. Rishi Sunak will be joined by ministers from the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, as well as farmers and industry leaders at the meeting at number 10 on Tuesday. The Guardian understands there is a battle between the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, and DEFRA over immigration. Fruit and vegetables have been rotting in the fields and some farmers have gone out of business as there are not enough people willing to pick them. Farmers and DEFRA ministers have been lobbying the Home Office to increase the number of temporary visas for agricultural workers. But a senior DEFRA source said Bradman was ideologically opposed to such a move. Guy Singh Watson is founder of Riverford Organic Vegetable Company. He told The Guardian this, The reality of the conditions of many of those who work in the fields picking our food is pretty abhorrent. I really don't like the dependence on foreign workers who are inevitably treated badly. But in reality, to get the fruit and vegetables picked over the next few years, we do need more people coming from abroad to save the industry we have left. Interesting, he says, foreign workers will inevitably be treated badly. That's someone who is high up in one of these companies. Maybe he could not treat them badly, I don't know. Uh, maybe the economics doesn't allow it. I assume that's what he'd probably argue. Um, the Home Office, in response to this row, said this, the Home Secretary is clear that overall migration should come down. At the same time, seasonal labour is an integral part of the UK's rural economy. No other sector in the UK economy has the level of access to seasonal labour that is enjoyed by the food supply chain. We continue to support our farmers through the seasonal workers visa route and have now provided 45,000 visas through it with the potential for a further 10,000 places. Kim, what do you make of this? Kind of an interesting spectacle, I suppose, having a home secretary, you know, the person who is in control of, of migration, sort of standing up to a com conference of sort of fringe right wingers and saying we're getting our immigration policy all wrong. It's definitely an interesting time. I think the last time that I was on here, we were talking about Braverman, and here we are talking about Braverman <laughs> again. But there are just so many inconsistencies in this policy. And one of the things I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned, but also that guy from Riverford mentioned, is that they never talk about improving standards for workers. So it's never, should we increase people's wages? What are these conditions that Riverford mentions that are really horrible for migrants that they're bringing in. Why are we not trying to improve those, not just for migrants, but also for these people that Braverman um, claims to want to train up? And so we have our own homegrown talent. But if you were serious about growing our homegrown talent, and for me personally, I would see that as one strand that isn't um, in opposition to also having um, migration from abroad. I think we need both people move because they move to where opportunities are and they will continue to do that um, regardless of the rhetoric that's coming out of government. But there is no consistency between, say, talking about getting more people in to, um, sorry, training people 
um, for, to be HGV drivers or to do this fruit picking where we have a shortage. And then, as you mentioned before, we're not seeing the same conversation um, around healthcare. So why is it that it's seen as okay to be recruiting from countries, which some of which have quite weak health systems, and it's seen as perfectly fine to use migration in that sense to bolster the NHS. Um, but that isn't seen as something that is okay um, for other sectors. And we know that that's linked to this idea of a highly skilled um, points-based system. But then there's an inconsistency between those arguments, which are very much linked to this idea of a post-Brexit system that we have more control over, and the reality that actually there isn't much evidence that even that system would bring down our migration numbers overall. Um, for one, we often look to Australia and the model that they have there for their kind of points-based, highly skilled migration. Um, but what that system is doing at the moment is actually taking a lot of um, doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals um, from the NHS to Australia because they are attracted to higher pay and better quality of life that they can get there rather than here. And so if we had a government that was actually serious about solving the shortages within the NHS or the shortages that we're seeing in um, kind of seasonal work, then really what they'd be talking about is improving standards and improving workers' rights. But they're not serious. We know that that's not really what um, this rhetoric is meant to do. It is a distraction because, as you said, they are responsible for migration. They are responsible for the policy. And even they can't deliver on their rhetoric because what I'm sure they know is that it's completely undeliverable. People will continue to move where opportunities are um, regardless of which policies we put in place. And the only difference it will make is that it will put more of that risk onto the individuals that move, whether that's making them all live on a barge um, off the coast of England, or whether that is people who are going to die trying to cross borders, the people will continue to move. And they know that they cannot keep, um, keep up with their promises. And so that's why we keep seeing them coming back to this empty, completely inconsistent rhetoric. And that's what we've heard um, today at this very strange conference. Yeah, we're going to talk more about the conference um, a little bit later in, in this show. So we're, we're going to go into detail about what it actually is and where all these people are speaking. I suppose to, to stay on this particular story just a, a little bit longer, I suppose the Brexiteer argument is, or the Brexiteer argument which says, um, if we restrict migration, that will raise wages because companies are forced to. So if companies at the moment, uh, you can sort of put your, your sort of self in their shoes and they say, well, we want to get a lot of cheap workers oh, British people won't come and work on our farms, so we will have to look for um, inward migration. And then they sort of appeal to the Home Office to say, can we get put on a shortage industry? And the Bravman argument is to say, or the Brexiteer argument is to say, well, if you, if you cut that option for them, they will have to, they'll be forced to pay more wages and treat people a little bit better. Now, as we've said, there's a complete inconsistency here because the government do actually control wages and conditions in social care and they're doing the precise opposite. But um, when it comes to fruit picking, Kim, I suppose my question for you is, I mean, can you imagine any situation where like loads of English people are going to suddenly be flooding to pick fruit and vegetables? I mean, it's, it, it's sort of interesting as a sort of vision for the economy, which is to say we're going to pull up the drawbridges so you guys are all going to have the opportunity to dig up potatoes and pick strawberries, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure there is much keenness to do anyway. I mean, obviously someone needs to do it. So I think that should be as, as well paid and as, as sort of fulfilling as it can possibly be. But I'm not sure how big a sort of selling point it is for the conservatives to stand up and say, no, you can be the ones 
picking the, the strawberries and the raspberries? I am not convinced that even if they raise the wages associated with fruit picking, that suddenly we're going to get en masse um, this movement of people internally within the UK wanting to do that work. And there was an interesting interview on BBC News today in response to this story. And there was one woman who um, was a student and in the holidays, she would often go and do fruit picking and she very much enjoyed it. But the reason she was able to do that is because she was going to university that was very near um, where a large farm was. And so for her, it made sense to be able to do that. She also had the holidays, which happened to coincide with the seasons. So it worked for her. In a country where most people have grown up, where they'll have strong bonds and relationships in the places that they live, but also have caring responsibilities for others in their life, the reality is they're probably not going to move and do seasonal work, even if they increase the wages considerably. It might increase the number of people that do do it, but I don't think it's going to be enough to um, kind of plug those gaps and plug those shortages. And I think the government is aware of that. And the goal really is just to make a rhetorical stance um, to try and preempt the backlash that they're going to get um, from the increase in migration numbers that's going to be announced later in May. And they're all, I suppose, because they think that, you know, the, the, the wheels are falling off the Tory cart. This is basically all of the people positioning who's going to replace Rishi Sunak. So if Rishi Sunak loses the next general election, even though Braverman was the Home Secretary, she can say, yeah, I know you Tory membership, you all hated migration, but do you remember I gave that speech to the National Conservative Conservatism Conference? I was against it all the time. I was, I, I had nothing to do with me, even though it was my job. So this is all of them sort of trying to shift responsibility preemptively in sort of um, expectation of a Tory leadership race. Let's move on to an election which has just happened, a very important one. The Turkish presidential election has been widely billed as the most important in the world this year. That's because an organised opposition has come together to pose a genuine threat to the current regime. Standing to retain the presidency is Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He's the increasingly autocratic populist president who has been the country's leader for 20 years. Erdogan entered the race under a cloud with the Turkish economy in crisis. Last October, inflation hit 85%. At the same time, in the wake of February's enormous earthquakes, he has been criticised for being slow in providing aid to the displaced. Aside from those more material issues, international coverage of Erdogan has tended to focus on his successful moves to centralise power in his own hands. In 2017, a year after surviving a coup attempt, Erdogan changed the country's constitution, moving to a presidential system and awarding himself sweeping powers to bypass parliament. Erdogan has also cracked down on opposition parties, arresting their members and purging them from local government and civil society. Standing against Erdogan is the centre-left Kemal Kilic Darolu. He's leader of Turkey's second largest party and heads up a coalition of five other centre and right-wing parties. He's also been helped by the support of an alliance of left-wing parties, including the pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, or HDP. They aren't part of a parliamentary alliance with him, but they agreed to field no presidential candidates throwing their support behind Kilic Darolu instead. And that's lent him the votes of much of Turkey's Kurdish community. For his part, Kilic Darolu has promised Turkey a swift return to parliamentary rule, so less centralisation, a more conventional economic policy, and the return of two million Syrian refugees to Syria within the next two years. So not necessarily the most progressive of policy agendas there. There is a third candidate, the ultra-nationalist Sinan Uwan, whose main policy 
has been the immediate return of Turkey's refugees to Syria. So he's to the right of both candidates. Around 90% of the country took part in these elections, incredibly high turnout. Um, and they were for parliamentary seats as well as the presidency. This chart from Al Jazeera shows how things stand now that almost all the votes have been counted. Erdogan got 49.5% of the vote, so very close to the 50% needed to return him to the presidential palace. Kalic Darolu took nearly 45% of the ballot, and Uwan got just over 5%. Um, a fourth candidate appeared on the ballot despite pulling out of the race last week, yet he still managed to pull half a percent of the votes. The top two candidates will now go head-to-head -head in a runoff election on the 28th of May. Um, the course of that vote may well be determined by who Uwan chooses to throw his weight behind. Speaking to Sky News, he said this, We see ourselves as being the insurance in the Turkish government. Mr. Kilic Daroglu does not have much foreign policy experience, and Mr. Erdogan is an individualist. Our being in would balance this. That is why, if we agree on this, we would like to be part of the government. Turkey is on the verge of change. These leaders are old in age, but also old in the way of thinking. They are obsolete. Soon, we are expecting a changing of the guard in the political elite, with the younger generation taking over. Elections to parliament took place at the same time as the presidential first round, and in those, um, Erdogan's AKP party took a hit. They received just 35% of the vote, which makes this their worst result since 20 or 2002. And um, to discuss the elections, I'm joined now by Jihan Tuwalf, sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of The Fall of the Turkish Model. Um, Jihan, is this a success for Erdogan? I mean, it's, it's not as impressive as his previous election victories, but he's pretty close to crossing the finish line. It's a qualified success. So it's not a huge failure. So um, all the commentariat uh, was expecting a huge failure. I think uh, in the light of that, it's a qualified success. In absolute terms, it's not a success because he has barely retained uh, the, the vote for him, which is a coalition vote, and the votes for his party have dropped. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people were saying the, the votes for the party are going to uh, be lower even than 30%. Uh, so... We have seen that this is not true. And why were people saying this? Because his own base is hungry now. I mean, this is this is serious. People can't, a lot of people, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, 80, 90%, but a lot of people can't buy basic food staples. Uh, so people are hungry and they're still voting for him and uh, his coalition. And uh, of course, uh, people have died because of his policies, but it's not just his policies. It's, you know, Turkey's developmental path, which he has further entrenched and made worse. So he has not changed uh, Turkey's developmental path completely, but he has made it worse. And uh, that developmental path is at the basis of the, this high number of deaths uh, in, in, uh, during the earthquakes uh, in, in Turkey. So despite all of that, people have voted for his party, a third of the people, and half of the people have voted for him. So it is a qualified success. I mean, I know you're critical of, of the development model from the start of, of Erdogan's sort of presidency or prime ministership before that. Um, but I suppose one of the reasons he managed to maintain support was that there was economic growth for quite a long period under his governance. Now yes. you have a situation where inflation's running very high. He has a very sort of um, counterintuitive policy whereby he thinks that lowering interest rates will also lower inflation. So the economy is a bit of a mess. 
um, at the same time as you just explained the the response to the earthquake left a lot to be desired how is he managing to retain this support even though sort of this this vision of competence that he once brought with him seems to have crumbled somewhat yeah, that is a very important question and uh, you know this will happen again and again people will misread the situation so in the 2000s people were saying oh they're uh, voting for Erdo people are voting for Erdogan because he's just giving them basic food there is nothing else in this. You know, there is no ideology. There is no ideals. Uh, so people are hungry and he's feeding them. Uh, he's buying their vote with, uh, you know, um, coal and basic food items. That was the explanation. Very, very bad explanation, if you ask me. So now people are saying in, in the last few years, well, since growth slowed down and he, he can't give coal to people and basic food items to people, so people are voting for him because these people are horrible nationalists and they hate refugees and Kurds. Uh, and that's why voting for Erdogan, you know, these nationalist people are so stupid that they can't understand they're hungry or, you know, uh, nationalism is more important for them uh, than uh, being hungry or well-fed. Well, all of these explanations are false. Uh, it's not that people are nationalists. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people are nationalists. It's not that people don't care about food. They care about food. But these, these factors are combined, really. You know, people think about their national interests, uh, their own imperialist ideals, uh, Turkey's imperialist ideals, and their economic well-being in a quite integrated way. Uh, so they, they look at the picture. What are the alternatives? Uh, the alternatives is, you know, reliance on foreign cash flows, which are not going to come. So uh, probably the, the coalition is not going to do anything uh, better. Uh, they, they might scratch some of these national economy policies, but not much else. They, they're not going to change a lot. Uh, but un under this party, uh, due to the low interest rates, which cause high inflation, so yeah, more hunger definitely, but because of low interest rates, all of these temporary and uh, poorly protected jobs are created. So uh, if those goes, go away, well, there, there's just going to be more hunger. So what is, what is the opposition's alternative, either economically or ideologically? They don't have an alternative. They, they're just saying we're going to go back to the 2000s but that is not an option. The world has changed. The, uh, Turkey cannot go back to the 2000s. So people are sticking to what they know. So it's really the opposition's failure uh, not to have created an alternative and to have stuck to this very shallow, uh, you know, pragmatic, realist, quote-unquote realist, but unrealistic route, unrealistic option of going back to the liberalism of the 2000s when the global conditions for that liberalism have already been destroyed. How democratic were these elections? I mean, as I sort of, you know, intimated towards in the introduction, we often hear about Erdogan in the international press as a bit of a dictator, an autocrat. And at the same time, this this looks, you know, from the outside as if it was a pretty competitive election. It doesn't, doesn't look like a fake election. Um, so, I mean, how, how democratic was this? Was it free and fair? I wouldn't call it free and fair. Uh, but uh, it's it's not undemocratic or fake either. So people don't understand this when they put Turkey in the same bag with Russia in terms of how elections are managed. This is a real opposition. 
Uh, they are well organized. Uh, well, I mean, they're allowed to organize. They're not well organized. They're allowed to organize, as, uh, except uh, the Kurds and the socialists and the environmentalists. So that there are, you know, quote unquote, dangerous people uh, who have not been allowed to organize in Turkey for decades. Uh, but other than that, you know, the, the the government lets these people do what they want, and they can't they can't do much. The mainstream opposition. Uh, but uh, the, the elections are not fair because. The government has monopolized the media, the judiciary. Uh, so all of the routes for really uh, holding on to power uh, after winning elections, they are closed off. So the government already controls everything. The regime, I should say, it's not simply a government. The regime controls everything. And uh, they, they, it's dubious that they would allow the opposition to stay in power for more than a few months. They would definitely sabotage it through the judiciary, through the media, uh, through the police forces. Uh, so, the, I mean, this is this is a, a fascistic government, but, I mean, be careful, it's not a fascist government. So this is a very liberalized, or I should say neoliberalized fascism. So the, they love the parliament, uh, they love the liberal game, uh, but they, they play it in a very fascistic way. So, yes, there are elections, it, they are competitive, um, but uh, a mass organized far right party or two of them and uh, a couple of two far right mass par uh, parties that are up and coming control the whole system. So it is very much like fascism in that sense, but with a, a functioning parliament. And I should add that uh, the, the people who can really challenge the system, most of them are in prison or live under the threat of uh, imprisonment. So the, these are the more organized uh, forces on the left, uh, the, the Kurds, the socialists, the communists, environmentalists, urban rights activists, they are all in prison, you know, tens of thousands of people, and the rest of them uh, live with the threat of imprisonment or other uh, types of harassment. Finally, let's very briefly um, look ahead to the next two weeks, where the second round is going to be in two weeks' time. Um, what is going to sort of be the key points in campaigning over the next two weeks? Is there going to be now a big sort of contest over who can get the endorsement of the third place candidate? Yes, that is right. I mean, right now, that is the key issue. And as you pointed out in your introduction, this, this is a seriously far-right candidate. Uh, he's basically a racist. Uh, so uh, his inclusion in the regime would push uh, the regime further and further to the right. So that, that's going to be his bargaining chip with the regime. He's going to say, well, I'm, I'm going to join you, but you need to give me uh, a few positions within the government. And if that happens, Turkey's in big trouble. Uh, well, bigger trouble. I mean, we are already in big trouble, but it's going to be you know, much worse if he joins the government as a minister or something like that. Uh, and that, that's going to be his uh, demand, of course. And from the opposition, he's going to demand the same. So he's going to say, well, I, I need a ministerial or similar positions of authority in your government. And he's probably going to also demand the exclusion of the Kurds uh, from uh, the coalition. But th that's going to be hard to pull because the formal coalition already excluded the Kurds. The so-called table of six behind Kılıçdaroğlu is a pretty anti-Kurdish platform, but the Kurds calculated, very correctly so, that they should vote for Kılıçdaroğlu because the far-right option is way worse than his center-right nationalism. Uh, so I, I don't know what Oğan can demand uh, from the opposition in that regard, but he will 
he will he will push for some kind of exclusion um, or further exclusion, I should say, of the Kurds. And in either case, he, he is uh, going to demand that he join the government, whether whether it's a far right or a center right government, and whichever is the case, he's going to push that government, whether, whether it's the current opposition or the current. Uh, uh, ruling coalition. He's going to push that coalition further to the right. Let's move straight on to our next story. Of course, we will be coming back to this story over the next couple of weeks because a second round will be incoming in two weeks' time, as I say. Tory right-wingers are gathering in London for a brand new conference, and they're there to celebrate British nationalism. The National Conservatism Conference brings together some of the country's most famous headbangers. Great replacement theory aficionado Douglas Murray will be there. You can also see Lee Anderson, perhaps pleading for more hangings or public floggings for the poor. Um, free speech warrior Toby Young will also be speaking. And um, for a taste of the quality of the fort on display, this is an excerpt from the speech Tory MP Miriam Cates gave. Having a home, a secure job and support from your family, community and nation are not the only conditions to starting a family. You must also have hope for the future. And that hope is not reaching so many of our young people today because liberal individualism has proved to be completely powerless to resist a cultural Marxism that is systematically destroying our children's souls. When culture schools and universities openly teach that our country is racist, our heroes are villains, humanity is killing the earth, you are what you desire, diversity is theology, boundaries are tyranny, and self-restraint is oppression, is it any wonder that mental health conditions, self-harm and suicide, and epidemic levels of anxiety and confusion characterize the emerging generation? Maybe just don't require us to spend 50% of our wages on rent, and then our student fees on top of that. You know, it's, 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 she's overthinking it, really. She's overthinking it. People are annoyed because we're poor. Fund the service is a little bit better. I don't think anyone is really being driven to despair by cultural Marxism. There's been plenty of fiery rhetoric too. This is self-described Britain's strictest headmistress and former social mobility czar, Catherine Burblesing. How much do you love your country? How much do you love the values that you claim to defend? Do you love them enough to tweet under your own name? Do you love them enough to change your child's school to one that's less woke and ignore the impact on your social status? Do you love them enough to do more than simply chat to your friends who already agree with you at dinner parties? For heaven's sake, man, stand up and be counted. As Russell Crowe says in the film Gladiator, a clip I regularly play for my staff, hold the line, stay with me. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Will your life echo hollow with cowardly hypocrisy or will it echo with courage, valiance and honor? The choice is yours. Strength and honor be with you all. Now get yourselves to detention. Do you love your country enough to tweet under your own name? I suppose I do, actually. Interesting that she says, do you love your country enough to change your ch child's school to a less woke one? Now, I, I suppose maybe she's saying join the governor's board and try and change the, the, the sort of curriculum. But it's a, a more obvious sort of interpretation there, it seems to me, that if, you're, you know, if your kid is getting taught about, let's say, the fact that some people are trans in their PSHRE sessions, you should remove them from school and put them in a different school. Now, that, uh, that's not about loving your country. That's essentially child abuse, right? I don't like what you're getting taught in PSHE, so I'm going to drag you away from all of your kids, all of your friends, sorry, and put you somewhere else. 
Now, I don't know precisely what was the correct interpretation of that speech, but it didn't, it didn't particularly strike me as good parenting advice. The conference runs for three days, so there's a lot more of this to come, um, and there are 50 speakers on the lineup. And it's only the latest in a series of such conferences held around the world. Writing in the History News Network, historians Thomas Lecac and J.L. Tomlin describe national conservatism like this. We keep seeing fascism not just creeping but openly marching across America. It's the insurrection on January the 6th and it is Patriot Front and it is all the other visible symbols. But historians know that fascism doesn't just come waving swastikas and burning down the Reichstag. It comes in business suits, it comes with conferences, it comes with intelligence. You're explaining why the ethno state surely doesn't require massacres, at least not until after the camps are built. National conservatism is that wave, carefully made up, well-dressed, thesaurus open and ready, proclaiming fascism without ever wrapping sticks around the axe. Um, so that's the take from two historians there. I'm not sure I necessarily endorse all of um, those descriptions, but... Uh, We'll see. It's an interesting take. Um, the National Conservative Conferences are funded um, by an American organization called the Edmund Burke Foundation, named for the conservative philosopher, of course. Um, this is what those two historians say um, about that. Um, the Edmund Burke Foundation has a much longer reach than you would expect. Their conferences read like miniature CPACs from this past year, bringing in figures from the right and far right in Europe with similar figures from the United States. Prime Minister Viktor Orban of Hungary, whose authoritarian regime has been praised by the American right. Giorgio Maloney, a leader of the far right Brothers of Italy party who spoke on God, Homeland, Family in 2020. MP Matthias Carlsen of the Swedish Democrats and Prime Minister Mato Morawiecki of Poland, whose Law and Justice Party had been following Orban's path until the war in Ukraine. So they've all spoken at the National Conservatism Conferences the foundation has held in Europe. So you know, whether or not you think that this is fascism and death camps might be coming, which to me seemed a little bit of the interpretation of that first quote, um, those associations of this conference are pretty worrying. Even so, they've been overlooked by most of the media here. So you aren't really hearing, oh, this is where Giorgio Maloney used to speak. And all of these, all of these, you know, everyone admits that Giorgio Maloney's party is far right. Everyone admits that Orban is far right. But then when it comes to uh, politicians in this country who associate with them suddenly, or maybe they're not as far right as the people they ally with, I don't know. As I say, the media have been blind to this, or at least asleep at the wheel. Um, some activists were more alert, though. This is what happened when Tory MP Jacob Rees-Mogg tried to give a speech. The, um, no no, no uh, grease paint, but bright lights. Um, national Conservatism. Excuse me. Yes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, you all look very nice people, and I'm sure you are fantastically nice people, uh, but I would like to draw your attention to a few characteristics of fascism. Well, thank Just you because very you much. <laughs> well, there we go. Our jolly good fellow has had to leave, but we believe... speech so he can have his national loonies conference next week and he can see how many people he gets to come along we believe in freedom of speech until he said fascism and then i took away his mic because <laughs> I wasn't sure if I wanted to hear what he said next. Um, in any case, let's take a look at what happened when Home Secretary Suella Braverman gave her address. Defining conservatism is undoubtedly a challenge. 
defining. you come on a boat, unless you are brown. She loves it, obviously. I mean, obviously, you know, that doesn't that doesn't mean to say don't do those kind of protests. I thought they were, um, you know, perfectly reasonable. Hopefully it will draw more attention to the nature of the conference, although I'm not sure that's how the BBC and Sky News will sort of cover it. It's not all bad, though. Um, there were apparently some very interesting speeches who made, um, and people who made some very interesting predictions. Um, we, in fact, got a mention here at Navarra Media. Um, David Broder is a historian at the conference. He's come on the show before. Um, he tweeted this quote from Ed West. He's deputy editor um, at the website Unheard. Um, and he said this uh, you know, when he was giving a speech. Tory NIMBYs keep house prices high by resisting house building or have their, quote, grandkids listening to Navarra Media and voting for the Green Party, unquote. I think that probably is a correct prediction. Um, I think the housing crisis is probably one thing driving people to a different form of politics and so maybe a little bit more self-aware than some of the other people speaking at this conference was Ed West. Kim, what do you make of this conference? I mean, some people are calling it fascist. I'm not sure if we can quite call it fascist, but it's definitely a different kind of conservatism, which is rather unpleasant and I suppose a little bit scary, actually. Yeah, I wouldn't call it fascist, but I would say that it does show how far at least um, a certain contingent of the Conservative Party have moved to the right and are happy to be associated at least tangentially with the far right as well. I mean, you said this is going on for three days and I don't know about you, but I hadn't heard of it until today. Um, today was my first time hearing about this conference. It's definitely got all of the kind of big hitters of like the unhinged Olympics. We've got the eugenicists, we've got race <laughs> replacement theory, we've got the anti-Semitic term cultural Marxism, we've got woke being thrown around. So, you know, you've got all the on the kind of right wing nonsense bingo, you know, we've ticked everything off. If it was a drinking game, we'd all be hammered. But what I found really interesting about your intro, other than me trying to not laugh consistently at some of the speeches, um, is one, the tweet from Ed West, because um, it does kind of show that, you know, kind of Tories or um, people with more um, right wing ideologies telling on themselves. And you have that um, with him. And you also have that with the MP that was um, throwing us all with a good time um, by describing like left wing politics, basically, and how it's, you know, corrupting the youth, which is, you know, the MP does say, for example, to start a family, you know, you need a secure home and a secure job. Sure, it, you know, descends into nonsense, but 
it is there as the kind of foundation of what people need if they want to enter into traditional family making. And then we have it again in this tweet saying, you know, young people, of which, according to the FT, in, you know, in Britain, 35-year-olds are the least conservative generation ever, so probably not wrong, that if we, you know, continue to, for example, not build houses, if we continue to see an out-of-control rental market, if we continue to see it being very difficult for young people who um, don't have family wealth to be able to support them and to enter onto the housing ladder, if that's something they're interested in, then you are going to push people to more progressive politics. And, you know, there have been numerous studies showing that that is the case. And it does kind of indicate that they're not unaware of the concerns, um, but ideologically, they're not interested. So I, yeah, I've found that, you know, gave me a bit of a chuckle that tweet as well, because it's always nice to get a mention too. Um, I'm sure you've seen it in your subscribers, you know, the movement is building. What you can see potentially from this conference is they have noticed there is a crisis of reproduction in conservatism. It it hasn't always been the case that young people were left-wing and older people were right-wing. When Thatcher was Tory leader, in fact, I think more 18 to 24-year-olds voted conservative than they did did Labour. So it's a somewhat new phenomenon that young people are very, very left-wing, or at least not conservative. So they've sort of recognised this crisis that conservatism happens. But because um, it would upset too much of their base to actually increase house building, for example, or make renting more pleasant, what they instead say is the only thing we could possibly change without upsetting all the vested interests, which are a core part of our constituency, is to go and meddle with PSHRE syllabi. You know, say, well, what are they getting taught in citizenship class? Presumably that's why they're becoming left wing. It's obviously not going to work. Um, a little bit embarrassing, I think. Um, I imagine we will have, uh, you know, some more from that conference over the next couple of days. And in fact, actually, we do have some more from that conference over the next 15 minutes. Next story. Keir Starmer still wants you to know, just in case you had any shadow of a doubt, he's really, really not left-wing. He made this pitch to the Progressive Britain Conference this weekend. Some people think that all we're doing is distancing ourselves from the previous regime. Well, we are, but that misses the point. This is about taking our party back to where we belong and where we should have always been back doing what we were created to do. We've been drifting away from working people for a long time, and that's unforgivable. That's why I say this project goes further and deeper than New Labour's rewriting of Clause 4. This is about rolling up our sleeves, changing our entire culture. It's our DNA. Who are we in it for? Who do we serve? Who do we wake up in the morning and fight for? Who do we have in our mind's eye when we make decisions? And with the levels of cynicism in our politics, the letdown, the drifting away, the disconnect, our collapse in Scotland, the loss of the Red Wall, this task is going to be ongoing, difficult, and enormous. It is, if you like, clause four on steroids. Clause four on steroids. For anyone who's... Um, under 40, or I suppose didn't do a politics degree, Clause 4 is what Tony Blair rewrote um, when he became leader of the Labour Party. So I think around 1995, Clause 4 used to be the Labour Party being committed to public ownership, collective ownership. Um, He changed that to something a bit more generic um, about believing in 
reducing inequality and social justice or whatever. So it, it, it was a bit of a moment in 1994 or 1995. It's in the past and no one cares anymore, right? And especially, I mean, it's a strange line to be using now because, you know, question time last week, let's say, we showed you clips of it on the show. What was everyone talking about and everyone was so angry about, right? It was privatized water companies and how the privatization of all of Britain's pride and joys. I don't know. Was the water ever the pride and joy? I don't know. But British social infrastructure that was pretty goddamn important and didn't work too badly. Privatizing it all has been an absolute disaster. And now you've got Keir Starmer standing up and saying, what am I going to do? Privatization on steroids. Just very, very strange. Obviously, if you haven't heard of Progressive Britain, that's the rebrand of Progress. So Progress was the, the faction that was launched specifically to back Tony Blair. Um, so yeah, all a little bit I don't know, it's a bit Groundhog Day. Doesn't feel like he's really changed with the times. Um, let's go to one more clip from that speech. This was Starmer's most headline-grabbing line. I don't think the language of stability comes naturally to progressive politics. I think too often we dismiss it as conservative, as a barrier to change. Now, don't mistake me, the very best of progressive politics is found in our determination to push Britain forward a hunger, an ambition, that we can seize the opportunities of tomorrow and make them work for working people. But this ambition must never become unmoored from working people's need for stability, for order, for security. We must understand that there are precious things in our way of life, in our environment, in our communities, that it's our responsibility to protect and preserve, to pass on to future generations. And look, if that sounds conservative, then let me tell you, I don't care. Somebody has got to stand up for the things that make this country great. And it isn't going to be the Tories. That was the, the most controversial line, I suppose, because he said, um, I, if you think I'm conservative, great. Now, I actually didn't mind that line. I thought it was kind of interesting because conservatism with a small c, you know, there obviously is some value to it. People do value stability, security and things not changing too much all the time. Right. That, that's why it's just, well, one of the reasons why it's an enduring political project. But it just seems so empty. And I suppose the reason I say that especially is this phrase working people. Now, obviously, when you see that speech, this is not about working people versus people who don't work. What this is about is him pitching to a specific constituency who he thinks have abandoned the Labour Party and started voting Conservative. Now, these are people who are potentially older homeowners um, and not that liberal. So maybe don't live in inner cities, right? And he's pitching to them. It's essentially a cultural group and he's making a cultural argument, but he's trying to make this about working people. Now, working people, working age people, right? They've voted Labour, I think, in every election for the last decade or so, right? So even in 2019, when Labour didn't do as well as we would like them to do, we got the majority or Labour got the majority of working age people. But it's suddenly working people means specifically this one small subset of people um, who happen to not like some of Labour's liberal values. Now, these are the real working people. Now, you can make an electoral argument that they are a group of people who it's very important to appeal to, but you can't disparage everyone who isn't them as not working people. You know, it's, it, it's not serious analysis. And I think it is quite degrading to our culture, actually, because you're essentially making the... What makes someone a real working person is essentially being a small-c conservative. There's nothing wrong with being a small-c conservative, but that is not the only kind of working person we have in this country. And if we're being real, most working-age people in this country are not particularly conservative. And following that speech, questions abounded um, about whether it was just another sign of Keir Starmer's fickleness. 
So now suddenly he's saying he's more conservative than the conservatives. Not what he sounded like a couple of years ago. Well, this was Shadow Business Secretary Jonathan Reynolds speaking to Laura Koonsberg. When he won the leadership, he said he'd make the case for moral socialism. Um, yesterday, he said, I don't, uh, I don't care if I sound like a conservative. Now, what have people went to make of that? That well, sounds like someone who'll say all, almost just, anything in order to be elected. Let me just his reference. What Kay was asking is what is it the Conservative Party actually conserves? Because it's not the NHS, it's not the BBC, it's not our waterways full of filthy sewage, it's not the nation, it's not family life. And he was pointing out that to meet the things, to, to celebrate the things, to defend the things that make this country great, it's the Labour agenda that will do that. And on Keir personally, I voted for Keir Starmer. I wanted someone who could be the Prime Minister and do it for the right reasons, be in public service for the right reasons. And he embodies that and that hasn't changed. And I think simply taking, yes, the statement and values he had in that leadership contest, but recognising we've had things like the pandemic and that's affected how much money there is to spend on public services. Now, you've heard that answer before. Very predictable. I don't find it particularly persuasive. It's the same Keir who stood in the leadership election. I mean, it's the same person. It's the same flesh and bones, but he's saying completely different things. He's dropped all of his pledges. Jonathan Reynolds also said, well, he's kept all the things I like. Well, that's not really what makes someone trustworthy. They do what I like, even if they break all their promises. Um, as I say, he was out there to defend Keir Starmer. On not every channel did they actually need a shadow cabinet member to stand up for Keir, because sometimes their own journalists did it for him. Um, this was Sky's political correspondent, Liz Bates, commenting on the speech. I think where the Labour Party is at, and Keir Starmer is hardworking and methodical, and he saw where the Labour Party was at and where it needed to be. And what they did was they ditched all of that ideology uh, that came with Jeremy Corbyn. He's moved the party into the centre ground because he knows that that is where uh, political parties um, uh, win general elections. So they're less ideological now. He knows that you win um, elections in the centre ground. Now that wasn't, you know, a shadow minister for trains or whatever. That was a political correspondence for Sky News. They're supposed to be an impartial journalist who is essentially saying, Keir Starmer, he's brilliant um, because he's very sensible, very hardworking, and he's dropped all the ideology. Now we've just shown you a clip of him saying that working people are conservatives. Now that's, that's ideological, right? You might say it's necessary to win an election, but to sort of rephrase this as the people who said they wanted to transform the economy and make housing affordable, they were ideological. The guy who wants everything to stay the same, but with some more asbos, he's unideological. That's a very ideological statement from Liz Bates there from Sky. And I'm not sure if she's aware of it. Does she know she's doing Keir Starmer's bidding or is she so deep in this sort of ideological world that of course what Keir Starmer is saying is objectively sensible, objectively unideological. Because I mean, you could say that's, that's the definition of ideology. When what you're saying is incredibly ideological, but you make out as if it's just common sense. And obviously that common sense is being reproduced by Sky News, even when it wouldn't stand up to like the tiniest little bit of scrutiny. It's, it, it's not what political journalism should be like, I'm sorry. Next story and our final one. Right now in Britain, everyone is accusing everyone else of rigging elections. Well, that's how it can feel. Anyway, the Daily Mail has claimed that Keir Starmer plans to use EU citizens to rig future elections. And the story is based on reports that Starmer plans to give EU citizens the right to vote in national polls. Tory chairman Greg Hans is, for his part, fuming. Very angry about this. 
Labour's plans to give foreign nationals the vote at parliamentary elections is laying the groundwork to drag the UK back into the EU by stealth. Sir Keir spent years trying to block Brexit and overturn the largest democratic vote in this country's history. This is an attempt to rig the electorate to rejoin the EU. The right to vote in parliamentary elections and choose the next UK government is rightly restricted to British citizens and those with the closest historical links to our country. No other EU country allows EU citizens who are not their nationals to vote in parliamentary elections. Um, so that reference to um, those with the closest historical links is because Commonwealth citizens are allowed to vote in national elections in Britain. And the, the theory being put forward there by Greg Hans is that Keir Starmer wants EU nationals to vote in national elections so that they'll all suddenly vote to rejoin the EU, um, which to me seems a little bit far-fetched. Um, asked about um, that particular policy on LBC, Keir Starmer said this, Someone has been here, say, 10, 20, 30 years uh, contributing to this economy, part of our community. They ought to be able to vote. Let me bring it alive. I've obviously knocked on a lot of doors in the last few years. And you go to doors sometimes in general election and you're met with someone who says, look, I'm an EU citizen. I've been living here for 30 years. I'm married to a Brit. Um, my kids were raised and brought up here. They're now working in the UK. Um, I'm even work, you know, well working in lots of community projects, etc. But I can't vote, um, and I think there's a there's a that that feels wrong. Let's just take someone who's been here for thirty years, has literally put down their roots here. As I say, married to a Brit, their kids are here. They, this is their country. This is where they live. This is where they contribute. I think it's very hard to say. Well, you should really be voting back in your country of origin, where you haven't been living for thirty years. I, I actually, just doesn't doesn't pass the common sense test for me. Labour are also considering giving 16 and 17 year olds the vote about which Keir Starmer said this. Extending the vote to 16 and 17 year olds. Again, you're thinking behind that, Sakir, because critics would say um, they can't smoke, they can't drink. I don't think they can get married without mum and dad's permission, but they can vote. Yeah, they can have babies, they can work, they can join the army. Um, so there are big things you can do at 16 and uh, 17. And again, it's not such an outlandish idea. In in um, Wales, it already happens. In Scotland, Scotland. it already happens. Um, so again, we're looking at, um, you know, voting. We're, there's a big policy, because the Labour Party's got lots of rules, there are ways to make policy. There's a big policy-making forum. Um, and these are some of the ideas that are going into the mix, but they're not policy. Uh, we're just looking at them. I've spoken to my press team, and actually they've informed me that 16-year-olds can have babies. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I actually kind of agree with the policy I'm just playing. Um, Tories are, of course, accusing Starmer of rigging votes by expanding the franchise, but it's them um, who seem committed to actively shrinking it. Um, this month's local elections were the first ever in Britain where photo ID was required, and it seems the worst fears of the critics of that policy have now been confirmed. In Tyne and Weir, almost a 1,000 voters were turned away for not having the correct ID. The BBC report that of those 347, people didn't return to vote. That's people who would have voted who didn't vote. Um, the Guardian reports on a nationwide study from a group called Democracy Volunteers, um, and that suggests 1.2% of voters were turned away for lacking ID. So the Guardian report this. Democracy Volunteers, a group of election observers, said it conducted snapshot surveys in 118 councils on the 4th of May. The group said observers saw 1.2% of those attending polling stations turned away because they lacked the relevant ID or were judged to not have it. Of those turned away, 53% were identified by observers as appearing to be non-white. The group said its team saw others allowed to vote despite not having ID, so that's pretty controversial. 
The group, which sent 150 observers, said its staff generally formed teams of two or three and attended 879 polling stations across all the regions of England. It said these observers spent between 30 and 45 minutes at each location observing the process and then completed a survey for each polling station. Earlier authorities admitted it would not be possible to accurately quantify how many voters lacking ID were turned away on the 4th of May. So you can tell their authorities, the official authorities have said, we're not going to get official statistics on this. So we do have to rely on on volunteer groups such as um, democracy volunteers or however the BBC collected their data. And um, bringing together these two stories, so uh, the Labour and the Tory sides, or uh, the, the Labour and the Tory decision, so one to restrict the franchise, the other to try and expand it. Um, someone who's commented on both of these is Jacob Rees-Mogg. Speaking to the right-wing National Conservatives Conference, he said this. Parties that try and gerrymander end up finding that their clever scheme comes back to bite them, as dare I say we found by insisting on voting ID for elections. And we found that the people who didn't have ID were elderly, oh, and they by and large voted Conservative. So we made it hard for our own voters and we upset a system that worked perfectly well, was rather the glories of our country, actually, that we did on an honesty basis when the real problem is with postal voting. So don't get too fretful about random schemes brought up by the socialists because gerrymandering doesn't really work. Gerrymandering doesn't really work. And we know because when I was in government, right, he, he was in cabinet when this was passed. When I was in cabinet, we tried to do it. I mean, it backfired because it's actually older people who are struggling to vote. Now, I actually don't think he has evidence for the latter part of that claim. Um, as we've seen with this report from Democracy Volunteers. As I say, the data on this doesn't seem as, as, as strong as we might like it to be because this stuff isn't reported on. But they're suggesting that uh, the majority of people turned away were non-white. Um, so, you know, to me, that doesn't suggest that it's really targeting classic Tory elderly voters, right? Um, so I would, I would dispute Jacob Rees-Mogg saying it has backfired for the Tories. But what he does seem pretty clear about is the intention of the Conservatives when they passed this reform which was to gerrymander. Kim, and we don't have much time, but I want your response to this and quite an admission from Jacob Rees-Mogg, isn't it? Absolutely extraordinary admission from Mogg. And it's already extraordinary and outrageous, that conflation between efforts to expand the franchise, so make it easier for people to vote and include more people in that, and actively restricting people's access to vote. But the most shocking and interesting comment is the fact that he is admitting to gerrymandering that they have done this intentionally and when it's not worked in their favour, they've seen it as problematic. Um, I do agree with you about um, the evidence. It's not that strong as to who has been affected by voter ID and who hasn't. I saw some anecdotal stuff on elderly people, um, but most of the research has suggested that it would be ethnic minorities um, that would be most affected. But the real revelation is the admission that this was a policy that was intentionally implemented to restrict access to the franchise. And that's that's quite the admission. That's quite the feat. It really is. I mean, it should be a really big deal. This guy was in government um, until very recently, I might add. Um, Kim, it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you back on Navarro Media. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me again. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow at 6pm for another live stream. We'll see what they've said at the National Conservatism Conference tomorrow, what, what, what other faux pas they make, what other sort of weirdo little dereaves they make into um, the, the pits of right-wing ideology. Um, for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.